Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23 today. People might ask, why do we preach from Leviticus? The ceremonial and civil laws are ancient and they're um, retired, so to speak. But remember, the third category of laws, the moral laws, uh, continue. We considered chapters 18 and 19 last week, the application of the moral law of God. Uh, a love chapter is actually the chapter on the Ten Commandments because they're, the ten are reduced to two, the motives for obedience, to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But even the ceremonial laws have gospel relevance. And chapter 23 is a chapter that gives us the festivals of the people of Israel in, in their uh, nation. You have the Feast of the Lord in chapter 23. You have the weekly Sabbath, the Lord's Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, or the Waving of the Sheaf, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, these were festivals uh, that God had commanded the people of Israel to observe. And as you can see, one is weekly, and, and the rest of those are yearly. There was also a festival, though it's not called included here, but in chapter 25, every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. So the Lord is showing his sovereignty over our weekly, our yearly, and our, our, our lives. Um, and he wanted them to have these, these feasts are actually festivals. For the most part, they were times of, of rejoicing. And the Lord tells us in chapter 23, in relation to the festivals, ye shall rejoice before the Lord. The only one that was a day of mourning and affliction was the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. It was the only mandated day of fasting in the year. In our dispensation, God has not give, commanded certain days of the week or the year in which we're to fast, but he does admonish us that we ought to be fasting uh, Jesus said, when ye fast, so he's assuming that God's people fast. In times of, of great national emergency, family emergency, a church emergency, difficult times when believers are being persecuted, that, that we forego meals and seek the Lord and earnestly ask for his blessing and his protection and his grace. So even the ceremonial passages have gospel import. He's just saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. We no longer have Passover. We don't have to slay lambs and sprinkle the blood on our doorposts. But the message is pretty clear as you read the scriptures that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And when his blood was shed, and God sees Christ's blood applied to our souls, 
his judgment will pass over us and it passed over us upon Christ. Christ suffered just like the lamb dies, but the people of Israel were safe in their homes when the death angel came through Egypt. Any family that did not have the blood applied to their doorposts had their firstborn slain that night. And so it's a gospel message that we read uh, in the New Testament that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And obviously anticipating this uh, Passover feast. But perhaps uh, our congregation was surprised that the reading, the public reading was from Haggai the prophet. The word Haggai literally means festal one. Um, the word feast, there's a couple words for feast in chapter 23. One means a holy gathering, a holy congregation, a holy uh, meeting. And the other one is Hag, from, and you get, you get the name Haggai, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the Passover. It's also found in other, in other books of the Bible. So Haggai was named by his parents as a festal one. Apparently they wanted him to bring joy uh, in his life. Now obviously his message is, is one of very solemn and serious note, but at the same time it's a note of rejoicing. Haggai's message was uh, it's time to rebuild the temple. The people of God were beginning to rebuild the temple after they returned from their exile. You know that from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But they stopped because of persecution and then they started to build their own houses and, and uh, built very nice ones. It says in Haggai that um, you know you built your sealed houses and and uh, you, you built your nice homes, but you've now let go of the house of God. And Haggai's message is to put God first. Uh, as Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so Haggai is encouraging the people to renew dedication and determination that nothing is more important than the kingdom work of God. And uh, if you want to know the joy of the Lord, we'll seek him first. He's blessed you with homes but you need to seek his kingdom and his glory and, and uh, to uh, facilitate public worship in the places of worship. So how, how do the feasts, what do the feasts have to do with the gospel? Well, again, I remind us of 2 Timothy. says, all scripture that's given by inspiration of God is profitable, and that includes the book of Leviticus. Uh, and it's profitable for four things, for doctrine or teaching. So we ask, wherever we read in the Bible, what does it teach me about God? What does it teach me about myself? What does it teach me about God's will? And so on. For reproof, uh, what do I need? You know, what reproof do I need? For correction, you know, I'm going in a, diff a wrong direction, so the Lord is correcting my, my error and leading me and instructing me in the way of righteousness. So we have much to learn from these passages that even though they have been given an honorable burial, yet they're still very applicable today. And even in our land, we understand festivals. Uh, Israel's festivals were, were religious in nature, but they were more than religious. There were, there were uh, you know, for instance, the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. It was a very fun time for 
kids especially, maybe not so much parents, where they were all to leave their homes and have a tent city. They were to make tents, if you will, booths, tabernacles. And uh, children love, and parents too at times, love to camp. So it was, a, it was a, a week of camping, if you will. And it was a special time. You can imagine coming into the city and seeing all these tents, usually just booths made of branches or, or uh, boughs of trees. And, and uh, it was just a, a, a week of, of joy. And this weekend, people are camping on Memorial or uh, on Labor Day weekend, and we have Memorial Day, we have uh, Independence Day, we have New Year's Day. We also have a few religious holidays, though they become secular in nature. We have Christmas, we have Easter, and uh, other holidays that that at least originally had, were religious in nature. And so. What can we learn from these particular festivals? Now, they're called the festivals of the Lord four times in Leviticus 23, verses 2, 4, uh, 37, and 44. And they're also called festi- uh, festivals to the Lord. So it's the Lord who instituted these, and it's the Lord that is to be the object of our worship as we observe these festivals. Uh, he is the Lord our God. And they're called sacred meetings which in, in, indicates they were to promote unity. It was really a time where uh, it, it interrupted their daily lives. They were to stop you know, what they were doing, basically, their business, and, and unless it was obviously needed business, necessary business, whether you milked the cows or, or you, uh, you know, attended to people if you were medical personnel, but basically interrupted daily living to as a time to seek the Lord and to fellowship with one another. They, were, uh, they brought variety into the daily lives, into the rhythm of people's lives. They had an occasional festival, just like our holidays bring uh, variety to our otherwise you know, mundane lives. And they were to rejoice before their Lord, their God, verse 40. They were to celebrate, verse 41. And so, at the end of the day, basically, it was teaching them God is sovereign over their lives. He can stop their weekly lives. And he commands them to keep the Sabbath day holy. He was to intervene in their yearly lives. They were to um, observe these festivals in the spring and fall especially. But again, God's sovereign. And after 50 years, uh, they were to cease altogether their, their uh, harvest. Well, they're, they're planting, and land was to return to the original owners and people who had been enslaved because of debt or whatever were to be released. And so it was, it was just a show of God's sovereignty over their lives as the Lord. And uh, again, it brought great variety. He calls them my feasts, uh, which you shall proclaim, uh, 23 verse 2. And so... They were to be joyful occasions, occasions to remember in particular what the Lord had done for them and was continuing to do for them, a time to pause and consider the Lord, just like um, Haggai indicated. So the first one, interestingly, he calls actually the first feast 
He includes the Sabbath day, not just a yearly feast, but verse 3. Well, he says, these are my feasts at the end of verse 2, and he includes actually the Sabbath day. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And so, again, the Lord is saying, I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, and I actually am God. You know, people will say again, uh, who is... Who, uh, who is the one that, that, that commands you to do what you, ought, what you ought to do? And who is the one that demands worship? And He's God. Is he God, is he, is he God or something? <laughs> yes, he is. If he's God, then he has that right and that power. So what he's saying here is that each, each Lord's Day, each Sabbath day is to be a day of jubilation, a day of joy, a day of public worship and private worship. That's why many believers did not, do not believe that fasting should occur on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, because it's to be a day of jubilation and not a day of affliction. Now, the Day of Atonement could occur on any day of the week. It was the, the tenth day of the seventh month, so it occurred, but that was actually called a Sabbath, but it was not, it, it may every seven, eight years, it would occur on their Sabbath day, but that was to be a day of affliction. A day of mourning because of you know, basically national mourning over their sins and the fact that God uh, removes our sins. And so on the Sabbath day, there was not to be any work at all other than necessary work. But the other, the other days of jubilation, it says no servile work if you read in your Bibles there, which means no heavy work. So it, did, it, it, it meant that on these these days, they could do work, but not any heavy work, because it was to be a holiday, if you will, a holy day. And so the Lord's Day is a day to remember that God uh, instituted one day in seven. He's the one that established the seven-day rhythm. People have tried 10-day weeks and 14-day weeks. They found that it doesn't work. God has made our clocks to be seven-day rhythm, rotation, and uh, He's the one that's sovereign over that. And he says, I want one of your days, of your seven days, to be dedicated to public worship and serving me. It's to be a day of rest, a day of remembrance that God created us, and a day of rejoicing that the Sabbath was made for man. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And it's still one of the Ten Commandments, though people have sought to chisel it out as if it's inconvenient and passed away. But there are still ten uh, it's a Decalogue and not a Nuevalogue. And so the Lord, again, wants this day to be a day of jubilation. So in that sense, it's perpetual because the Sabbath day is part of the moral law. So actually, this was not part of the, the ceremonial laws that every Sabbath day was to be a joyful day among the people of God. And then you have the yearly festivals beginning with the this, this Passover. So the Lord has sovereignty over our years. And what does the Passover signify? That Jesus, our Passover, would be sacrificed for us. And that's how Paul states Jesus is our Passover who is sacrificed for us. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So you, you have the noun and the verb. The Lord's Passover is the noun in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. But it's, it's also used as a verb. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you. He uses it in a verbal form there in Exodus 12. And so the idea is exactly how it states. He pass, his wrath is coming, but instead of falling upon the sinner, his wrath passes over the sinner and falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our salvation. That you, know, you think about, I don't know if you saw the picture of, of the fire in, in uh, Hawaii. There was this house that stood out from all the other houses that burned down. It remained intact. And the man says he felt guilty about it. It had a red roof. I don't know if you saw this. All the other houses around it were just burned to the ground. And the fire just went right around or over. I don't know what it did, but it missed it. And it was totally intact. And the man said it had nothing to do with necessarily the kind of wood. Though it was, uh, I think he said it was cedar wood. He said our neighbor had cedar, same kind of wood. And that house burned down. But it stood there, all the, as it were, all the wrath was around it, but that house stood. And what a picture, I think, of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ took the fire of God's wrath, but, but it passed over those who trust in him. And that's what the Israelites must have known. When John, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the people looked to Jesus, whom John was pointing to, no doubt their thoughts were, he's the, the final lamb. He's the Passover lamb. He's the one that, that God has promised to come and take away our sins. And one of the last, the last vision of John in Revelation chapter 5 says, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb that was slain. And so Jesus is called the Lord's Passover. And again, when I see the blood, God says, I will pass over you. Because if you trust in Christ, you're shielded in him. The wrath passes over us. It falls upon Christ who said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so the Passover, if you think about the, the, uh, the festivals, there is the thought that the movement goes from the beginning of time all the way to the end of time. The Sabbath remembers creation. And every week of ours begins with the Sabbath, but the Passover begins our salvation. And then you continue on until the Feast of Tabernacles, which has the idea of the fact that they remember that they went into the land of Canaan, and they don't want to forget the fact that God brought them out of the wilderness into Canaan. And the Feast of booths of the Feast of Tabernacles is a time for us to remember that God delivered us from Egypt and the wilderness and brought us into the land of Canaan. In other words, gave us eternal life. And so Tabernacles is the movement, is the final movement. And some even say Jubilee even takes us further. Jubilee takes us into eternity. It's every 50 years on their calendar. And it's a year of release. You proclaim liberty with the trumpets and the, the heralds. And so we see, we, we do believe there's a movement from the beginning of the world to the end of the world in all of these festivals that God proclaimed in Israel. Just amazing wisdom of God and amazing pictures that God gives us in the Old and the New Testaments. The second, or the third feast, is called Unleavened Bread. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 
It says, Purge out the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So the unleavened bread, as you remember, when they left Egypt, they were not have any leaven in their dough. Leaven in the Bible, for the most part, is a picture of sin. But it, 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 it was right upon the heels of the Passover. In other words, the point is, when, when God's Passover is slain, his people have their sins purged. And it, our, our sins are purified. We are purified by the blood of Christ. And we should have no leaven in our lives. As Paul says, purge out the old leaven that you might be a new lamp. A new lump, sorry, a new lump. So our purity and our cleansing is because of the blood of Christ. It's like John said, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The proof in the pudding of a Christian is we're now new creations in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There are those who profess to be a Christian that continue to be fornicators and liars and adulterers. And Paul said... Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor liars, nor thieves shall inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, a, a true believer is born of the Spirit of God, that old things have passed away, all things have become new. It doesn't mean, again, that believers are sinless. We want to be, but our lives are changed because the Lord takes away our heart, our, our old nature, our heart of of flesh and gives us a new nature. And so unleavened bread is a challenge to believers. Look, your life has to show that you're a Christian. You can, you can be a, a professor all day long, but do we really possess Christ? And so remember, behold the Lamb of God, Passover, who takes away the sin of the, of the world. And so a, a true Christian is one who's had his sins forgiven and is seeking to live a holy life. That's the proof in the pudding. Buried, he carried my sins far away. What a difference Christ makes. Uh, when I was converted in 78, I was, a, I was basically a drunk and druggy and a liar and luster. And, you know, it just like the scales dropped from my eyes, as it says of Paul in Acts chapter 9. I didn't want to do those things anymore. My heart was changed. I wanted to be with God's people. I wanted to start reading the Bible. Where, where did that come from? It wasn't just a turning over a new leaf. It was, it was a, the new birth. It was a, a change in nature from a, the Lord changing a sinner into a saint. And it was no, no power at all in us. It's the power of God that can change a soul. The next festival was the festival of first fruits. When they, when, when they uh, started the harvest, they were to take sheaves and wave them. And obviously you can think of what this is, the resurrection. So you have Christ's crucifixion, the, 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 the uh, Passover, and the change that that brings. And some even say unleavened bread speaks of his burial and the fact that our sins are buried and carried away. And then you have the resurrection that they, they wave the sheep. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Christ is the first fruits. After Christ are we the, the fruits after of the resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He rose from the dead and we rise in his train. If 
Jesus didn't rise, and we have no hope of the resurrection. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And so first fruits is definitely a, a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And they were to be very careful to wave these sheaves uh, publicly to say, look, the Lord has brought this harvest and we need to give him thanks. And the, the first fruits of the harvest is Christ rising from the dead. What a privilege it is to be in union with him and to know that if he is alive, we shall live also. The Feast, the feast of Weeks is next, or 50 days after the sheep was weighed, uh, called Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. It was 40 days, Christ was 40 days uh, alive after his resurrection. For 40 days he was on the earth, we're told in Acts 1 verse 3. And then they waited 10 days in prayer which gives us 50 days, and then the Spirit of God came down, Acts chapter 2. And so Pentecost is the birth of the church. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, by his, his, uh, the shedding of his blood uh, and the fact that he rose from the dead, now ushered in an explosion of conversions. And there were a lot of people saved in the Old Testament but Israel was a microcosm of the church. It was one nation. But now the Lord had promised that all nations would receive the gospel. And the church would not just be in Israel, as it were, but it would be all over the world. And that explosion started in Pentecost. You remember what Jesus said when he was just before he left? He said, I don't want you just to preach in Israel, in Jerusalem. I want you to preach in Judea in Samaria, into the uttermost part of the earth. And that's how the book of Acts goes. It starts in Jerusalem, it goes into Judea, then Philip and Peter go into Samaria and preach the gospel, and then Paul, at the end of Acts, is in Rome. And he's saying in, in, the, in, the, in the epistle to Romans, I'm going to Spain. So he was trying to go to the farthest part of the Roman Empire and beyond at that time. And here we are, on this side of the pond, as they speak in, in, uh, in Great Britain. Here we are, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in a corner of the vineyard here in western New York, but Christ has his gospel and his churches. I mean, like he said in Isaiah, they'd be in the islands of the sea. And so the, the Feast of Pentecost is the birth of the uh, worldwide church of Christ where you had thousands saved in Jerusalem, and then you had Judea, Acts 2-7, to Samaria, Acts 8, and the uttermost part of the earth, chapters uh, 9 and following. So the Lord is, is, again, developing, he's showing the development of his church and the development of his kingdom in these celebrations, in these festivals. Now, did the people understand the prophetic implications of these things, probably not very deeply, but they certainly would ask questions. And uh, it should not have been a surprise to them that the gospel would reach beyond Israel. I mean, you had Job. Job wasn't an Israelite. Noah wasn't an Israelite. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes, and, and Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua... But then you see even in the Old Testament, Gentiles being converted. The Ninevites, many of them got saved. You have, you have uh, um, Naaman the Syrian, Syrians getting saved. And the, the uh, 
in, in the book of Joshua, you remember the, um, the Gibeonites were, were converted. And so even back then, you have Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so to name just a few, they should not have been surprised, even though they said to Peter, why are you preaching to Gentiles? And Peter said, look, the Lord gave me a vision that I'm not to call any man common or unclean. And so then they started to quote scriptures that, look, Amos says that the gospel will go beyond the nation of Israel. This should not be a surprise. And aren't, shouldn't we be so glad that salvation is not just in the Jewish nation, but salvation is among all nations. Just like he told Abraham, you'll be a father of many nations, not just one. And so we often, you know, we often have to have uh, the Lord repeat things over and over for us to get it. Like he had to repeat the, the vision to Peter three times before he finally got it. That he's to go to a Gentile um, soldier and preach the gospel. We find that in Acts chapter 10 and, verse, and chapter 11. The next celebration or festival was called the Feast of Trumpets, chapter 23, verses 23 to 25. It's the memorial of the blowing of trumpets. Now, this I think is a simple thought again. Trumpet is, is, is a clarion call. It's, it's, a, it's a, an illustration of a, of a herald. They blew the trumpets when they were calling people to start the festival. They blew trumpets when they called the armies to war. There are many reasons why they blew the trumpets. But the trumpet call is the evangelization of how are the churches going to explode throughout the world. We've got to send missionaries all over. Paul was a missionary throughout Asia Minor, Turkey today, and up into uh, Greece and over to Rome, and we find that the apostles were scattered everywhere, way out east to uh, India, Asia. We have down into Africa. The apostles went everywhere preaching the gospel. And the Lord tells us, for instance, in Isaiah, lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions and the house of Israel their sins. Jesus said in Mark 16, 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Christians have the right to give the gospel out wherever we are, whether you're at Niagara Falls, whether you're in Australia. We have the right to preach the gospel. And of course, the devil does not like that uh, the gospel that undeceives souls. So he persecutes, he, he uh, imprisons, he executes. And we see that the Lord has taught us that, that even in the last days there will be a, a great escalation of persecution in the church. He said in Matthew chapter 28, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. So it's not just winning them and baptizing them, but they stay to remain being taught, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So the Feast of Trumpets was to indicate the trumpeting the evangelization of the gospel. And there were Israelites that would do that when they met Gentiles. David uh, had some of his men that were not Israelites. And David was a man, you remember, who wrote many of the Psalms. And he was a, he was a prophet. And so he shared the gospel with his soldiers and with his people. But 
the worldwide evangelism would not explode until, obviously, Christ died and rose again, and the full picture of the gospel was, was shown in the early days of, um, of the apostles in the first century. And then you have, interestingly, the Day of Atonement, verses 26 to 32. It seems to be a, a um, um, carryover or... or overlap of the uh, Passover. It seems to say the same thing. The Passover was the slaying of the lamb, the application of the blood, picturing Calvary in particular when Christ died. But then you have the Day of Atonement that took place once a year. Why would the Day of Atonement be added to the Passover? They seem to be saying the same thing. The Passover is the shedding of the blood of the lamb. The Day of Atonement, you remember, were the two goats. One his blood was shed and taken into the holy of holy places, which speaks of God's wrath being satisfied first. And then the second goat was taken into the wilderness by a fit man, and it's a two-for-one two picture. You have the one lamb slain and the blood sprinkled on the, on the mercy seat where God's presence is symbolized. God's wrath is pacified and satisfied by the blood of Christ. If God's wrath is first satisfied, then our sins can be expiated. And that's the second goat taken into the wilderness, and he let him go. It never returned with a man. It's a picture of our sins totally being removed, never to come back and haunt us again. As Jesus said, eternal life. And so whatever happened to that goat, whether it was struck by lightning, most likely killed by a predator, it fell off a, a, a cliff, it died. It was destroyed. It never found its way back into the camp. He took it far into the wilderness. What a picture, is, as Psalm 102 says, or Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far have he removed our transgressions from us. But as far as the gospel, that, I think, pictures when all of our sins are going to be gone altogether. Right now, even though our sins are forgiven, they've been, been paid by the blood of Christ, we're still sinners. We still sin. We still fall. We still uh, break God's law. We long for the day when, we, when sin will just altogether be removed from us. And I believe that's the point of the Day of Atonement. There's a day coming when all of our sins are going to be removed altogether. And that's called the Day of Glorification. When a believer dies, we never sin again. Our sin is behind us altogether. And that's why in Hebrews it calls... Christians who died, the spirits of just men made perfect. Even though they don't have bodies, they have souls that obviously going to reunite with their resurrected bodies, and yet sin is gone altogether. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I'll never, I'll never, I'll never sin again. I'll never lie. I'll never lust. I'll, I'll never have to confess my sins again. Every day I ask God to forgive me for my pride, for my cowardice, for my unbelief, for just so many sins we still commit. And yet the day's coming when a total day of covering will be for God's people. The day when all sin is forever removed from the hearts and consciences of God's people will be glorified. Sinners saved by grace forever and ever and ever and ever. So when Christians die, it's it's the forgiveness of sins 
and it's the removal of sins altogether. But the Bible teaches when unsaved sinners die, their sins will always be a part of them and forever and ever will be in God's prison. And then the feast or festival of tabernacles. Chapter 23, verses 33 to 36 and 39 to 43. Again, that was a happy occasion. Just picture yourself, and the children especially, no doubt, were really involved as they cut down branches and boughs of trees, says palm trees and thick trees and willows of the brook and, you know, no doubt, pine trees. And they just would make little lean-tos, I suppose, or just, you know, the best you can, make a tent for, for seven days and, it says all of the Israelites were to dwell in booths. So it was a practical, it was a, a tent city. It was a camping ground, the whole city and all the, all the regions beyond the city, no doubt. It was a day to rejoice before the Lord. And you remember the, the males were to, were to uh, after, they, after they spread throughout the Roman kingdom, Roman empire, the Lord said three Three festivals, all the males were to come. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Lord said, you trust me and send all your males. I'll protect your businesses. I'll protect your wives and children. So it was a matter of faith for a man, you know, for an Israelite who was living in Turkey or Africa to take that trek three times a year and to trust that the Lord was protecting their, their uh, seniors and their, their wives and children and their businesses. But the Lord said, I'll put my fear around people and I'll protect your, if you trust me. And, and go to, isn't that, in a sense, a gospel message for you and me? If we obey God, whatever it might be, that he certainly is there to surround our families and our churches with his grace. So the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the day when we will be in glory but we'll remember what it was like to be in this world. And the Lord speaks about him. The word tabernacle, God says of Christ, he tabernacled among us. You see, the Lord tabernacled with his people in the wilderness. They all had tents. They moved from place to place. And again, God was sovereign because it says they may have been in one place for a day, and then the trumpet blew, and the cloud came and they had to move. And then there were times where they were a month in a certain place, or a year, and God was testing them in his sovereignty. I'm sure that when you think about it, when you, when you set up camp, and you set up your tents, and everybody's exhausted from moving from the previous place, and you have a good night's sleep, in the morning he says, it's time to move. Moses, we just got here. God says so. It's time. And so we trust the Lord that whether it was evening or morning, whether it was a day, whether it was a month, whether it was a year, and again, all these festivals, God is saying, I am your God. And I met a God who's a killjoy. They were festivals. They were happy times. They were joyful times. And think about it, when you and I are in heaven and Christ has prepared a place for us and Whatever our places will be, it doesn't really matter. We're not going to need roofs. We're not going to need umbrellas. We're not going to need parkas, are we? But we're going to remember that we lived in this world. And, and God's 
supplied our needs in this wilderness. And so one day he's going to keep reminding us. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that God will tabernacle with his people. And what I was saying previously, and I forgot to continue, that it wasn't just that God was saying to the people, you dwell in tents. He tented in the middle of them. The tabernacle was God's tent. And so as it were, God condescended and tabernacled right in the middle of his people. So they couldn't say, why don't we have any permanent residence? The Lord was saying, it's not until you get in Canaan that you're going to have a permanent residence. That's the message for you and me. Don't put your tent pegs down too, too deeply. This is a land of sojourning. But the Lord is tented among us. It says in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. When Jesus was walking in Jerusalem and Judea and in Galilee, that was God in the midst of his people saying, I'm with you in this wilderness. The day's coming, I'm going to give you a permanent place, like he gave them permanent places in Canaan. But I want you to remember the Feast of Tabernacles, that you were in the wilderness, and I delivered you from Egypt, and I delivered you from the, the, the sins of the nations around you. And I brought you into the promised land, into heaven, where now you have a permanent place. But we're always going to remember, because the Bible says God will tabernacle with his people, even in heaven. That even though we're in a permanent place forever and ever, God will never let us forget. And what's a one of the, the wounds of Jesus will never let us forget what, that we were lost and deserved God's wrath. But forever and ever, we will remember that the Lord delivered us from the, the wilderness of, of uh, sin and brought us into the promised land. And may I just include Jubilee from chapter 25, the days coming that, that there's just a proclamation of liberty that's forever and ever and ever. Never will be, there will be a second fall. There's nobody that's going to be in heaven that's going to fall into sin like Adam did. And then plummet us all once again into, into a fall, into sin. But the Lord will ensure that there won't be a second fall. And, and he will proclaim liberty once and for all. Complete release. Bondage is gone. And the trumpet of the Jubilee will sound. And forever we will be with the Lord. We won't need calendars. We won't need watches. And we won't need clocks because time will be no more. Time will be no more. What a Savior. And I've just scratched the surface. I've taken a thimble to the, to the ocean of the Word of God, and we've just had a little, a little taste, I trust. And I would encourage you to read on and, and study some more on these feasts. But these are, are feasts of the Lord. The Lord is a God who is a God of joy and rejoices over us with singing. And we ought to rejoice with Him of his great salvation that, that he began and he will finish. As the Bible says, he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let us continue to believe on him. Lord, thank you for the gospel according to Leviticus. Thank you for your word. And we, well, we, we feel we're still such pygmies in the understanding of the scriptures that there's a deep, deep mine and a deep ocean. And Lord, we just take our little thimbles when we study your word and when we preach a message. 
But Lord, even a thimble of water can, can satisfy our thirst. Even a, a, a little bite to eat can satisfy our hunger. We need Thee, Lord. We pray that You would continue to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from the Word of God. Teach us, Lord. We long for the day when we'll sit at Your feet in heaven and listen to Your Word. Oh Lord, who are we? Why wouldn't You choose the angels to preach the Gospel? They would have evangelized the world many times over. Forgive us where we have dragged our feet, made excuses, and where we have loved this world and the things that are in this world and become idolaters. Lord, I thank Thee that you give us one day in seven to reset our clocks and, and, and to um, align our front ends so that we might, again, seek the Lord freshly, might have fresh faith and fresh repentance and fresh determination to seek Thee and Thy kingdom first of all. So hear our prayers and, and we pray that Your Word would not return void but accomplish what You please. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Closing this morning, turning together to hymn number 278 from our blue hymnals. How can it be that thou, God, should die for me? 278. 